passage beginning Galatians 6, verse 14. The Apostle Paul, writing to the believers scattered throughout Galatia, says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be on them, and mercy and upon the Israel of God. From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Let's remain standing for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for bringing together each one who's come today for the services. We pray, Lord, that you might quiet our hearts, that you might focus our attention on the truth of the word. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would uh, you would uh, have your way in the, in the proclamation and the application of your word to each heart here today. And in the invitation, would you bring about those decisions that you would desire to be made in hearts and in lives. We'll be careful in advance to give you the praise and the glory and the honor for it all, for we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, Paul writes to these people. In his day, he had no uh, battle between Baptist versus Presbyterian versus Mormon versus Jehovah's Witness or whatever. In his day, it was Jewish believer versus the Gentile believers because the Jewish believers were telling the Gentiles who were coming to Christ that in order to be a Christian, they had to be circumcised, keep the ceremonial laws like the Jews and the feast days and attend to become a member of the synagogue. And if they weren't, they weren't going to go to heaven. And so Paul writes in this passage of Scripture, no, it is not some kind of an outward physical mark like circumcision or uncircumcision that shows or is proof of whether or not a person really is a child of God, but rather a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, what rule? The rule of a new creature, uh, peace be on him and mercy and upon the Israel of God. And then he makes an interesting statement. From henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Now, what kind of marks do you suppose the Apostle Paul is referring to there? Well, to begin with, if we think about the ministry of the Apostle Paul, our minds immediately go to all the persecution through which he went. He was shipwrecked three times, spent a day and the night in the deep. He was beaten uh, uh, with uh, with uh, cats of nine tails in Philippi. He was in prison in stocks and in bonds. He was he was he was, uh, was shipwrecked uh, off the island of Miletus. Was bitten by a viper on the island. There was stoned outside of the cities of Lystra and Derbe. I mean, from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet, he must have been a continuously running scar. But if those would be the kind of marks you'd be thinking of, I'm afraid you'd be thinking of the wrong kind because the context of what Paul has said in this passage of Scripture is that it is not some kind of an outward physical mark that is evidence as to whether or not a person really is a child of the king. But what he does tell us is that there are certain birthmarks of a believer. Certain things which, mind you, do not save us, but things which, if we are truly saved, will evidence that salvation that we possess in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, there are lots of people in this world today who claim to be Christians. I don't believe a word of it. Why? Because I see their lives. You look at the way they live day in and day out. There seems to be no difference uh, from the way they used to live before they supposedly accepted Christ as their personal Savior. There's been no change. There's no evidence whatsoever. They can't say with Paul, from henceforth let no man trouble me because I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And then there are other people who say, well, uh, preacher, I really do uh, know that there was a time in my life when I supposedly accepted Christ as Savior, but I wrestle with that assurance of my salvation. There are lots of folks like that in Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches. They've trusted Christ as Savior, but it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, the devil will never, ever quit coming to the back of your mind and saying, are you sure what you believe is really the truth? Are you sure you really are a Christian, etc.? And so there are many people who claim to be saved who've never been born again and others who have been born again who struggle with the assurance of their salvation. 
Why? Because many of them have never understood what God gave us to understand as the birthmarks of a believer. You say, Perch, I'm still not sure I understand what it is you're talking about. Well, look, I was getting ready to begin a revival meeting in a church outside of Baltimore, Maryland years ago. I was standing in the lobby, shaking hands with folks that they were coming in to the, to the uh, lobby from the parking lot. There were two or three other little groups of people in the lobby having their own little conversations. Well, the door to the parking lot opened, and into the lobby ran a boy and a girl who both had to have had the brightest shade of red hair I've ever seen in my life. It was not dyed red like you see some people dye their hair all kinds of colors today. It was naturally red, but it was so red I felt like asking them when they flashed by if they had battery packs somewhere to keep it glowing that bright. And everybody else in the lobby noticed the same thing because as I looked around, they'd all stop their conversations and realize they'd all stop for the same reason because of that flashing red hair flying by. Well, uh, everybody smiled and went back to their conversations again. And about a minute later, the door to the parking lot opened again and into the lobby came a man and a woman who both had the identical shade of red hair. And everybody in the lobby stopped their conversation again, smiled and greeted those visitors as they made their way to the lobby into the auditorium. And then everyone in the lobby went and peeked around the door of the auditorium to see whether or not what they suspected was true. And indeed it was, as that mom and dad came and sat down about halfway back on one side of the aisle, their son and daughter with the red hair who'd been looking at the front of the puppet stage ran back and sat down with mom and dad. And everybody in the lobby turned around, looked at each other, smiled and nodded their heads. Nobody had to engage more than two or three brain cells to figure out to whom those red-haired children belong. That red hair was a birthmark, a dead giveaway that would let anybody know whose children they really were. Maybe you've had that happen to you sometime when you were sitting in a restaurant eating or standing in a line to get into some sort of a venue when some total stranger walked up to you, pointed at your children and said, boy, you can't deny them, can you? Why did they say that? Well, maybe you had the same big nose they do, or maybe they had the same floppy ears you do, or maybe the same high jowls or low cheek, uh, uh, low jowls or high cheekbones or something else. There, there, there was something that stood out as a birthmark that let somebody know. What, what Paul is telling us in the scripture is that as a person is a child of the king, there will be certain birthmarks of being a believer. Birthmarks of a believer that will let you or me or anybody else who cares to know know whether or not we really are children of the king. What are the birthmarks of a believer? Would you turn to me with me to another passage of scripture where we're going to spend the rest of our time having laid the foundation there? Go with me to the book of 1 John. 1 John, not the gospel of John now, but 1 John. 1 John chapter 5 to begin with. 1 John chapter 5. I want you to see what the Word of God says. There are a lot of people today that will say, well, preacher, wait a minute. I don't think a person can actually really know for sure whether or not if they die today, they're going to go to heaven. I don't know that a person can really say, I know I am a child of the King. Well, look at 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, please. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may, what? What? I still didn't hear you. What? No, K-N-O-W, not hope, not suppose, not struggle with, not wonder, but that ye may know, what? That ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So does 1 John 5.13 say or does it not say that we can know for sure whether or not we have eternal life? Yes, it does. As a matter of fact, how many chapters are in the book of 1 John? I'll give you a hint. If you're reading that verse, you're in the last one. Okay, how many chapters in the book of 1 John? Five. Are they long chapters? No, if you flip the pages back and forth, you'll see they're really very short chapters. In fact, even if you're a slow reader, you could probably read through the five chapters of the book of 1 John in 20 minutes or less. 
But you may want to jot this little piece of information down. Do you know how many times in those short five chapters of this one book of the Scripture, not to mention the other 65 books, just this one, do you know how many times God uses the word know as in referring to you can know you are saved? 32 times. 32 times in five chapters of one little book of the Bible, never mind the rest of the Bible, God says you can know you are saved. You can know it, 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 you can know it. I won't bore you with the other 22 times. But listen to me, any person, pastor, priest, or pope who says you cannot know today or 10 years from now whether or not you're going to go to heaven is lying to you. Because God very clearly states, yes, you can know that for sure. Look at, look at verse 20 of the same chapter. And we, what? Know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God, uh, true God and eternal life. So the Bible says, yes, again, we can know. Twice in that verse, the word know is used to tell us we can be certain we have eternal life. What then are the birthmarks of a believer that God has given to us in this book. You see, it's important for us to get these things in our hearts, in our minds. Jot them down in your Bible, if you will, because whether or not you need them, you'll run into someone else eventually who does. And the only way you can help somebody with the assurance of salvation, whether you or anyone else, is the application consistently of the Word of God. What are the birthmarks of a believer given to us in these five chapters of the book of 1 John. All right, stick with me as we go through them quickly. First of all, the first is not so much a birthmark as it is our birth certificate, and that is, number one, the Word of God. The Word of God. Look back at 1 John chapter 5, this time beginning at verse 10. He that believeth on the Son of God hath a witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar. Wait a minute, who would dare call God a liar? Because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given of us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I what? Verse 13 again. Written. He said, I didn't write it in the sky. I didn't give you a feeling or some kind of a dream. He said, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. I remember even being around when my father was talking sometimes even to people's children who were who were ministers' children, uh, pastors' sons or daughters, or people that were struggling with their assurance of their salvation. Have you ever accepted Christ as your Savior? Yes. Have you repented and turned from your sin, believed on Christ? And received? well, there was a time, but I just don't know. I'm just not sure. My father would say, are you actually willing to call God a liar? Oh, no, no, I don't want to do that. It's exactly what you're doing. See, it's the Word of God that tells us about the source of man. This, look, we didn't evolve over billions of years. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible says, God made man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. You and I are not pieces of protoplasm caught in the cosmic matrix and are not accidents. God made us for a reason. There's a purpose for our life. I like the song my father and his associates sang for so many years that had a chorus that said, I'm no kin to the monkey. The monkey's no kin to me. I don't know much about his ancestors, but mine didn't swing from a tree. 
It tells you the truth about the sin of man. Contrary to what folks like to believe, man is not basically good. The Bible says in Romans 3.10, there, uh, there's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.12, there's none that doeth good, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Galatians 3.22, the scriptures have concluded, all under sin. There's not a one of us who has not sinned. There's not a one of us who can even look at the Ten Commandments and say we've kept the first one. Not even the first one. What's that, preacher? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Oh, but you say, I disagree, preacher. I've always believed in God. He's always been God to me. Question, how many of us have ever done something we knew God said we shouldn't do? Every one of us. And how many of us here have ever not done something we knew God said we should be doing? Every one of us. What's the point? Anytime and every time we know what God's will is and we choose our will and our way over his will and his way, we have just made ourselves the God of our lives and we have broken commandment number one. I'll submit to you this morning that even those of us who are Christians probably break that one more even after we're saved than any of the rest of them. How many times do we run what God's word says, what the preacher preaches to the civil, whether or not I like it, whether I want to do it? That's making ourselves the God of our lives. So the Bible says we've all sinned in the sight of a holy God. It also tells you the truth in the word of God about the, the penalty for sin, the sentence for sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And we know that refers first to a physical death. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed of a man wants to die. Then what? Then hell. Read Luke chapter 16 in the true story that Jesus spoke about. The rich man died in hell. He lifted up his eyes being in torments. Then what? Then a terrible judgment. Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15. And at the end of that judgment, what? A lake of fire. Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Listen, folks. God is a righteous, just, and holy God. And he's declared that all sin must be punished by death. If he does not keep his laws, he's no longer holy, righteous, or just. And so the Bible says... All sin must be punished by death. But it also, in the Bible, tells you the truth, not only about the source of man, the sin of man, and the sentence of man, but about the substitute for man. Somebody said to me, I don't believe in a God who wants to send people to hell. I said, look, we're already headed there. God is the one who's trying to do something about it. He's the only one who's done anything about it. Why? Because the Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3.9. And so John, Roman, uh, John, excuse me, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Why? That whosoever believed in him should what? Not perish but of everlasting life. And as I've told other folks before, look, if you die and end up in a Christless eternity in a lake of fire, it is not because God wanted you to be there. It's because you chose to go there over everything God in his love and in his mercy did to keep you from it. Romans 5.8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Look, because God did not want any one of us to die and be lost for eternity, he did the only thing a holy, righteous God could do to continue to be holy, righteous, and just, and yet show his love in making a way of salvation for us. Not lower his laws or drop his standards, because he could not do that as a holy, righteous judge. The only thing he could do is that someone else who never sinned had to be punished for everyone else who has. And that lets all the humankind out, because we were all born in sin. Nobody had to teach us how to disobey our parents or tell a lie or fight with our brothers and sisters. You don't have to teach people how to do wrong, amen? It comes naturally from the old sinful nature. You have to teach people how to do right. The fact of the matter is, the Bible says we were born in sin and we sin willingly. Look, we don't even sin because somebody puts a gun to our head or a knife to our throat and threatens to kill us 
or a family member if we don't. James 1, verses 14 and 15 says, Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then lust, when it is conceived, and bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And we are deserving of that. And yet, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him, that's Jesus, to be sin for us. Who knew no sin, that's Jesus again, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 2.24 said, Who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. You see, God did the only thing he could do. There was no person who had ever been born on this planet without sin or lived a life without sin. So he sent his son, born of a virgin, without sin, to live a life without sin, to go to an all rugged cross because he was born, the birth that he was born, and he lived the life that he lived. He was qualified to die the death that he died, a substitutionary death for all mankind. The Bible says he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. But the Bible also then tells you the truth about the salvation of man. For the Bible tells us because Jesus came, lived that sinless life, went to the cross, died in our place, God accepted his payment, raised him from the dead. Because he lives, we can live also. The Bible says we can have his gift of eternal life. How? Keep three things in mind. Number one, repent. Acts 3.19 says, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Second Peter 3.9, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus said himself in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47, it was meet that he should be crucified and buried and the third day rise again and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations. The Bible says we need to repent. What does that mean? Well, what if I walked out to you this morning and I slapped you in the face as hard as I could? What? I said, oh my, that would be startling, wouldn't it? I'd say, I'm so sorry. Would you please forgive me for that? You say, well, okay, Brother Webb, I'll forgive you for that. You're a visiting preacher. I'll give you a break. I say, thank you for being so gracious to me. And I slap you again. What? I said, why, you nasty hand, you stop that. Would you forgive me again? You say, okay, I'll forgive you again. I said, thank you so much for being so kind. And I slap you again. Whack! I said, oh my, would you forgive me again for that? You say, I'll be Christian about it. I'll even turn the other cheek. I say, good, I'll hit that one too. Whack! How many of you think I'm really sorry I'm slapping you in the face? Nobody? I mean, come on, I said I was sorry. I said the right words. Doesn't that mean anything? No, how do you know I'm not really sorry? I keep on doing it. That's right. So let me get this straight. If I'm truly honestly sorry, I'm making an impression on your face that the FBI could identify the fingerprints of, what am I going to do besides say I'm sorry? I'm going to, oh, stop. I thought this was the South. It's supposed to say y'all quit. <laughs> or if it's a group, I'll y'all quit, right? Uh, anyway, uh, that's what they say in L.A. where my mother was born. That's lower Alabama. Anyway, uh, hey, listen, the, the fact is uh, that, that you'd be right. If a person says they're sorry, you expect them to stop doing what they say they're sorry for. Listen, God is the same way. Does that mean we have to change ourselves and make ourselves better so that God will save us? No. Uh, listen, repentance is not a work that we do. It is a change of heart and mind that results by the power of God in a change in our lives. God is not in the fire escape business. Or the fire insurance business. That's all some people are interested in. Oh, no, I don't want to go to a lake of fire for all of eternity. But I don't want to change the way I'm living either. I want to keep on in my sin and my wickedness. I just want to know if I die today or tomorrow, preacher, I get to go to heaven. What do I have to pray? Oh, yeah, dear Jesus, please save me. Whew. Man, that I prayed those magic words. I got keep lying and cheating and stealing and what I was doing before. Is that salvation? No. Why? That's not repentance. 
Jesus told the Pharisees twice in the same chapter, Luke 13, verse 3, and again, verse 5, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. God's word says, we need to repent. Have you truly repented? I believe that's the problem with a lot of people who say they're saved and have no evidence of it afterwards. Why? For them, it was nothing but fire escape. I tell folks this. If you don't mean business with God, he does not do business with you. So let me ask you. If you claim to be a Christian, oh yeah, I prayed a prayer sometime. Was there truly, honestly in your heart a desire to turn from whatever you knew it was wrong and let God change your life? Or was it nothing more than a fire escape deal to stay out of hell or fire insurance? If so, that's not salvation. Repent. Then what? Believe on Christ. Acts 16. Remember the Philippian jailer? Paul and Silas uh, were in prison and the earthquake came and the, the jailer rushed into the jail and said, sir, so much to do to be saved. They didn't say join our church. They didn't say go on a pilgrimage. They didn't say get baptized. They didn't say turn over a new leaf. They didn't say confess to a priest. They said believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. When Nicodemus came to Jesus by night with his seeking and his heart and his questions, the Bible says Jesus said to him, God, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever what? Believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In verse 18 he continued, he that believeth on him is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already. Why? Because he didn't do enough good works? No. Didn't go far enough on the pilgrimage? No. Didn't join the right denomination? No. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The last verse of the chapter, John chapter 3 says, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So let me ask you, do you truly, honestly, genuinely believe with all your heart that Jesus is God? That he left the glories of heaven, was born without sin, that he lived without sin, that he went to an old rugged cross and that he there hung on that cross and took your sin on himself and was punished for your sin and was raised from the dead. And uh, do you believe that he alone can save you? You say, what about the other religions of the world? Well, you can only believe what the Bible says in Acts 4, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's clear, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. God's word tells us we need to believe on him. Have you truly believed on Christ? Then what? We need to receive Christ as Savior. John 1.12 says, but as many as received him, to them give you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Hey folks, true or false, we're all God's children. Most people would say that's true, but according to the word of God, that's false. When we're born into this world, not a, not a one of us is a child of God. We are all God's creation, but none of us is a child of God. Read the parable Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 13 about the man who sowed wheat, and an enemy came at night and sowed tares in the field, and and, and, and the story of how they waited till the time of harvest, and they they uh, rip, rip, reaped them all together, and, and the, the, the wheat was gathered into the barn, and the tares were burned in the fire. And when Jesus was asked about that, what, what does this mean? He said, the, the wheat are the children of the kingdom, and the tares are the children of the wicked one. The most religious people on the planet when Jesus lived here were the Pharisees. They didn't think God made enough laws. They made up a few more of their own. What did Jesus say to the Pharisees themselves in John 8, verse 44? Ye are of your father, the devil. 
and the lust of your father you will do. Now look, the Bible says we're all God's creation when we're born into this world, but we do not become a child of God until we receive Christ as our Savior. Then it says in John 1, 12, he then gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Well, so how do I do that? The Bible says we can just go to him in prayer. You can ask him today. Romans 10, 9, 10, and verse 13, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. But with a heart man believeth unto righteousness, with a mouth confession to made unto salvation, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Never done it before? The Bible says now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. And if then you have repented and you believe and received according not to evangelist Barry Webb or to Pastor Swanky, but according to the written word of God, you can say, I know I'm a child of the king. If you're going to leave this country to go overseas like we do on mission trips, you have to have a passport. In order to get a passport, you have to send in the fee, the photos, and, and, and the fill that application, but you also have to send a copy of your birth certificate. Not a photocopy. It has to be an actual copy from the town records office where you were born with the raised seal and everything that says who you are, who your parents were, when you were born, etc. It's the black and white documentation. You were born when you said you were born. You are who you say you are. And from that, they make your passport and you come and go with that passport. Look, the Bible is our birth certificate. It is the first of the birthmarks of the believer. It is where we then go on and find the rest of these birthmarks as well. What are the other birthmarks of the believer? besides number one, the word of God. Well, look with me quickly at the other four. Here's number two, the indwelling Holy Spirit. The indwelling Holy Spirit. Look at 1 John uh, chapter uh, 3 and verse 24. 1 John 3 and verse 24 says, And he that keepeth his commandments and dwelleth in him, and uh, he in him, hereby we know that he abideth in us by the what? By the Spirit which he hath given us. Look at 1 John 4, verse 13. Hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us, because he hath given us of his what? Spirit. 1 John 5, verse 6, last sentence in the verse. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. Look at verse 10 again. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. Well, who is the witness that dwells within every believer? It is the Holy Spirit of God. The charismatic says, yes, you have to speak in tongues or some other such thing. No, listen. Some churches say you've got to pray for more of the Holy Spirit. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Scripture says that the minute you and I trusted Christ, we were baptized that moment by the Spirit of God into the family of God and our body, which was the temple of sin. Now, according to 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, says, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own? For you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Listen, the Bible says when you trust Christ, you got all the Holy Spirit you were ever going to get. He doesn't come in slices or installment plans. The emphasis of the Scripture is not how much of the Spirit do you have, but how much of you does the Holy Spirit control. Jesus spoke about the fact in John chapters 14 to 17 that I will go back to the Father and I will, I will send, what, another Comforter. He calls him the Spirit of truth who will guide you into all truth. How do I know the Spirit of God dwells within my heart? Biblically, not just because the Bible says when I trusted Christ, I was baptized by the Spirit of God into the family of God and became the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit of God, but it's also because he helps me to understand the Word of God. 
Pick up a Bible before you're saved and read it. You don't understand hardly anything you read, right? But pick up a Bible after you've trusted Christ. You begin to understand more. Why? Because you became a Ph.D. in theology all of a sudden? No, because the Spirit of God who comes to dwell within your heart helps you understand the Word of God. In fact, another scripture says he will take the things of Christ and show them unto us. How do we know that the charismatic uh, tongues movement is not of God? Because it is a cult of the Holy Spirit. It talks constantly and consistently about the Holy Spirit and emphasizes the Holy Spirit. And yet the Bible says itself that the Spirit of God will not speak of himself, but will show us the things of Christ. Look, it's that same Holy Spirit that if you're in the Word of God and He's been teaching you from the Word of God, if you bother to make the mistake of flipping on the religious television programs, you're going to find that some of these guys preaching, something inside is going to say, what that guy's saying is nonsense. That's not true. Have you ever had that happen? Hear somebody preaching on the radio or preaching on the TV and you say, wait, that doesn't sound right. You know what that was? That's the Holy Spirit of God telling you that. And, and, and so there are times that we find ourselves saying, Lord, I, I need to know what this passage of Scripture is about. You know, I was, I was helping a lady. She had, she had been uh, led to Christ out of a, a particular religion. And she was trying to win some of her other lady friends out of that, that same false religion. And every night she would come after the service and tell me about somebody else she was talking to, what they said. And I would say, well, give them this verse or tell them this verse or share them this verse. And she finally said, well, now, well, here's the problem, Brother Webb. The priest, where they go, says that if you base what you believe solely on the Bible, you can be in error. That you have to have the tradition of the church and the teaching of the priest to even understand the Word of God. That flies in the face, folks, of what the Word of God even says itself. What does it say in the book of James? If any man lack wisdom, what? Let him ask of the preacher? No. Let him ask of the pope? No. Let him ask of God. They giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. Now God says in, in Ephesians 4 that he gave pastors and evangelists and teachers to train God's people to do the work of the ministry. But you, look, you are a, 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 a we, we believe something is Baptist called the priesthood of the believers. We can go directly to the Lord ourselves. We don't have to go through a priest. We can ask God for wisdom. He'll give it to us. He said so in his word. He'll help us understand the word. Now, it's that, it's that same Holy Spirit of God that does something else, Jesus said, in those same chapters 14 to 17 in John. He said he will convince the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Revelation 3, verse 19 says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. You know what else the Holy Spirit of God will do? He'll convict you of sin. When you're a born-again child of God, you cannot go out and sin without the Holy Spirit of God convicting you. Think about it. Uh, after you got saved, or I should say before you got saved, probably didn't bother you to sin. But after you got saved, you went to light up that cigarette again and something in here said you shouldn't be smoking that thing anymore. You popped the lid off that can of beer and got ready to slug it down and something said, wait a minute, you shouldn't be drinking this stuff anymore. You walked into the bar where you've been so many times before and something in here said, you don't want to be here anymore. This isn't where you ought to be. You, you let out with a swear word or lost your temper. You started to lose your temper like you've done how many times before self-centeredly and something in here said, you, that, that, not anymore. You don't do that anymore. What was that, something? No, somebody. It's the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. In fact, the Bible says if you're without that, you're not a child of God. How can you say that, preacher? I didn't. God did. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8, he said, If you're without chastisement or of all our partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. You cannot be a child of God and do wrong without the Holy Spirit of God convicting your heart. That's one of the works that he does. Flip that coin over. He's also the same one that puts the peace of God in our hearts when we do that, which is pleasing in God's sight. Those are evidences of the Holy Spirit. So the first birthmark of the believer was what? 
Yeah, I'm going to review. Yeah, the first one was the Word of God. The second one now is the indwelling Holy Spirit. What's the third birthmark of the believer? It is a love for the brethren. Look at 1 John 2, verses 9 to 11. A love for the brethren. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brothers in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brothers in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. Look at 1 John chapter 3, beginning at verse 10. In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth Loveth not his brother. But this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life. Why? Because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that, he, uh, that we are of the truth, and shall Sure, our hearts before him. So again, what is the third birthmark of the believer? It's a love for the brethren. I believe that's going to evidence itself in three ways. Number one, you ought to love to be with the brethren. Something wrong if you'd be rather hanging around at the cussing, swearing, drinking crowd down the bar party someplace or the office party than be with God's people in God's house. You ought to have a love for the brethren. David said in Psalm 122, verse 1, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. May I ask you, even when you're thinking about coming to church this morning with your family or this week, was it we have to go to church? Or is it we get to go to church? We get to be in God's house again. We get to see our brothers and sisters in Christ. We get to learn more from the Word of God. We get to worship the one who did so much for us, who's done so much and does so much. Is it I have to go to church every week or is it I get to go to church? The second aspect of that is that we ought not be fighting or fussing with each other, feuding with one another. Why? Well, David said in Psalm 133, verse 1, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Ephesians 4, 29 to 32 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Listen, I remember once we were in a church, my wife and I preaching a week of meetings, that when you walked in, you just could feel there was something that was not right. There was just an atmosphere. Just You almost felt like you could cut the air with a knife. And we couldn't put our finger on it. Preached during the week, all week long. Got Thursday night. Uh, we hadn't seen a single person saved, not one believer at the altar, not one decision being made. And I turned the invitation over to the pastor. The pastor said, look, we're going to sing one more stanza of an invitation song. Nobody comes. We'll close the service. They started that last stanza. A lady came loose out of her seat over here, started to cry, came loose out of her seat, down the aisle, started across the middle. Another lady over here started to cry, came out of her seat, down the aisle, started across the middle. They ran into each other at the center aisle, looked up and realized that's who they were looking for, grabbed a hold of each other and started crying crying and hugging all over each other. And it wasn't more than maybe 40 seconds before the entire congregation emptied to the altar. I just stood there. And after the service ended, the pastor said, I suppose you wonder what happened tonight. I said, yes, sir, if you've got some information, I'd appreciate a little enlightenment. He said, well, did you notice it was after that lady and this lady that everybody? I said, yes, sir. He said, they're sisters. He said, they've been feuding now for seven years. Everybody in the church has picked sides. He said everybody that sat on that side of the center aisle was for that sister, and everybody that sat on that side was for that one. 
He said, Brother Rabbi, I'm not kidding you. We have not seen a soul saved in our services in seven years. But he said they got right with each other tonight. And not only did we see a great reviving among the people, but on the very last night of the meeting, she saw over a dozen lost folks come and walk the aisle and trust Christ as personal Savior, three of which that had not talked to each other before came by at three separate times and said similar things to me. You know why I got saved tonight, preacher? Why? Because if God can fix that, he can save me. Now, look, I don't know your heart. But I know sometimes there are young people that get mad at their parents and parents that get mad at their kids and somebody that gets a grudge against somebody else across the aisle or three rows back or two rows forward. Somebody doesn't like the pastor anymore or whatever that comes up. They, 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 they get upset. They get the grudging in their heart. Look, let me tell you, you can hold all the grudges you want in your heart and you're not going to give the person you're holding the grudge against an ulcer, but you'll do a nice one on yourself. And you'll rob yourself of the blessing of God and you'll rob your church of the power of God and the blessing of God and the spirit of God's working because you are hindering that by your spirit of bitterness. Well, you don't understand, preacher, what that person did to me how long ago? Ten years ago. Look, you realize the Bible says that if you come to the altar to offer a gift before God and you realize there that your brother has fought against you, leave there thy gift. First be reconciled unto your brother and then come back and offer the gift before God will even accept it. I wonder how many of our prayers don't even get past the drywall ceiling or whatever. Why? Because he knows we've got bitterness in our hearts. Unforgiveness. Anger. Churches have been split for some of the dumbest reasons from what color the carpet's going to be in the auditorium to whether the chairs are going to be, uh, whether they're going to have chairs or pews or whether the piano's on this side or that side of the auditorium or whether the toilet paper hangs closed to or away from the wall. I mean, silly things. You know, the Bible says one of the things that is evidence that we belong to each other, what did Jesus say? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if ye have what? War one with another. Amen? No, that's what some preachers or some people seem to believe in churches. But it says, by this shall shall men know that you're my disciples if you have what? Love one for another. And the third aspect of that love for the brethren is what do we do when a brother or sister in Christ falls into sin? Well, what does Galatians 6 verse 1 say? If a brother be overtaken with a fault, you which are spiritual, criticize one in the spirit of meanness. Amen? Lots of Christians do that. They want to sit back and eyeball everybody else. And as soon as somebody steps out of line or does something wrong, they want to broadcast to everybody else and send an open letter to everybody else. And they want to act like they're... No, listen, that's not what it says. What does it say? If a brother be overtaken with a fault, you which is spiritual, gossip about one in a spirit of concern. That's probably what's most often practiced. Now, I want you to think about this seriously now. Some of you can maybe think of uh, somebody or a family they got saved, maybe in revival meetings or in visitation. They started coming to the church, and they were doing pretty well. And then it wasn't long before the devil started working on their lives, and they became more hit and miss, and then they were more miss than hit, and now they're not even coming anymore. What did anybody do about that? Do we not just find ourselves standing around before service or in the lobby or the parking lot, depending on the time of year it is, saying, whatever happened to that family or so-and-so? Oh, don't you know what's going on with them now? Oh, no, really? Isn't that a shame? They don't need us to stand around and talk about them. They need us to go to them. The Bible says, if a brother be overtaken with a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such in one. 
in the spirit of meekness. It's not, you've got to be careful even how you do it. It's not, hey, I'm better than you are. I'm holier than you are, you rotten sinner person. You need to get your heart right with God. No, it's going to them with a broken heart and compassion and saying, look, I'm concerned about you. There's a need in your life. Could, you won't, you, we missed you in church. And when are you coming back? And wouldn't you like to pray about it? Or let's go talk to the Whatever it is that needs to be done, the Bible says we're going to work to restore that person to fellowship. Let's just say, oh, tragically, too bad. There goes another one. I wonder, do we have the evidence of that love for the brethren in our hearts? Do you have that in your life? If so, it is a birthmark of the believer. The first was the word of God. The second was the indwelling Holy Spirit. The third now was a love for the brethren. Here's number four, an obedience to God's commands. An obedience to God's commands. Go back to First First uh, uh, John chapter 2, this time verses 3 to 5. I want you to see this. <clears throat> And hereby we do know that we know him, if we what? Keep his commandments. Notice verse 4 now. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a wonderful Christian person with just a few issues. Well, he says, not what it says, preacher, but that's what most believers seem to believe. Well, I know so-and-so. They say they're saved, but they don't obey God's commands. But they're a really good Christian person. I know so-and-so, they really love the Lord, but they don't have a problem with Christian rock and roll music. I know so-and-so, they're a really good Christian, but they don't think they have to go to church every time the doors are open. I know know so-and-so, they're a really good Christian, but they never read their Bible and never never talk to anybody about Christ or whatever. Look, wait a minute. My Bible says, He that saith, I know him, he keepeth not his commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, the next verse says, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. You know, some of us don't like him when somebody says, you know what? Uh, you say you're saved, but I don't see the fruit of it in your life. You're judging me. Right? Don't you know, Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. And there you are sitting there judging me. Hey, tell him to go back and read the whole chapter where Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. And what you're going to find out if you read the entire thing is that what Jesus said is that not that we should not judge at all, but we should judge righteous judgments by the word of God, which judges all of us. In fact, it goes on to say, how can you help your brother with the speck that's in his eye if you have a beam in yours? First get the beam out of your eye, and then you can see more clearly to help the brother with the speck in his. Another passage put it this way, by their fruit ye shall know them. Look, if a person says they're saved, but there's no fruit, as you can say, I'm just a fruit inspector. I don't see anything there. Somebody else put it this way uh, uh, in the Bible. It says the show of their countenance doth witness against them. What does that mean? Have you ever been involved in Christian camp ministry? Counselor, bus driver, sponsor? Have you noticed you can take, you can have 14 different buses from 14 different churches in 14 different states show up at camp and unload for registration on the first day of camp, and within 30 minutes, all the rowdy and rebellious kids have found each other? Have you noticed that? How, how do they do that? I mean, do they wear a sign around their neck that says, I'm rowdy and rebellious? Pick me? No, they don't. What? There's an attitude. There's an air about them. There's an expression of the face. There's a way they dress. There's, you can pick them out of a crowd. They can pick each other out of the crowd. As they say, it takes one to know one. They didn't even take one to know one. That crowd, you can know them anyway as it is because it's, it's evidenced in, in the way they're living. Look, the Bible says that if we are truly a born-again child of God, there will be an obedience to God's commands. How many people say, well, I, don't, I just don't feel like I need to be in church? 
Well, wait a minute. The Bible says in Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves in the manner some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Look, my pastor and I were down the road from our church once and knocked on the door. A young woman came to the door and she said, he said, are you saved? She said, well, I'm a member of the church up the road here. He said, really, what church is that? She said, the one quarter of the mile up the road sits back in the field. He said, that's interesting. I'm the pastor of that church. I've never seen you there. Well, I just don't think, you know, a person has to go to church. But God said so in his word. Matter of fact, uh, a lot of people say, well, I don't believe in being a member of a church. I think you better go back and study your New Testament because everybody I can find in the New Testament who got saved except for the thief on the cross, and they wouldn't let him, let him off for baptism either. Everybody else, everybody else I find who, who got saved got baptized and then joined a good Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. They identified themselves as a member of the church of Corinth or Philippi or Ephesus or, or, or wherever to whom do you think the letters of the churches are written? Not a building or the property. That's not the church. The church is the people. The ecclesia, the called out assembly. That's the people. God's word says we need to be faithful in the house of God. If you say you're saved, but you don't obey God's commands about being in God's house. You don't obey God's commands about talking to folks about Christ. You don't obey God's commands about separating from sin. You don't obey God's commands about these other things. People look at your life and say, I'm a Christian. But they look at you and say, well, wait a minute. You're living the opposite of what God's word says then somebody's lying. Either you are or God is. God doesn't lie. It says, but him who keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. There's going to be an obedience to God's commands. You can finish this statement the Lord made in John 14, verse 15. If ye love me, what? Yeah, I keep my commandments. He didn't say, if you love me, wear a 14-foot bumper sticker that covers the whole backside of your car that says, honk, if you love Jesus, or a great big lapel pin that said, Jesus first. He said, if you love me, the best way to show it is by obeying my commands. Anybody here who's familiar with Patch the Pirate from the very first Patch the Pirate album, I believe, album, did you hear me? Album titled, I believe, Patch the Pirate. What is the very best way to show that you believe? O B E. D-I-E-N-C-E-Y. Because obedience is, according to Christ himself, the best way to show that we believe. Is there an obedience to God's commands? Or do you find yourself all the time arguing against the preaching? I don't believe what the pastor said today. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'm going to keep doing it. I don't care how many times it says it's wrong. But I don't know. You know, it's amazing. Some people will ask every preacher, every guest preacher that comes through their church about their own little pet thing. And they can have 49 out of 50 preachers tell them that what they're thinking is wrong. And if they have one preacher that goes by and says, well, I don't know that I see anything wrong with that. All of it, oh, see, Brother Saul says that it's okay. 49 to 1. Okay. Show the rebellious heart, a desire to excuse sin in our lives. And the Bible says if a person is genuinely born again, child of God, there will be an obedience to God's commands. Remember we talked about in Sunday school this morning, if you invite very many people to come to church, eventually someone will say they're not coming because the church is full of what? Hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? A person who says one thing but doesn't do what they even say. How many people today have been turned away from churches, don't even have an interest in church because they've seen too many people who claim to be Christians and they know even as lost people who don't know that much of the word of God what a Christian should do or shouldn't do and they know those people aren't doing right. First birth mark of the believer, the word of God. Second, the indwelling Holy Spirit. Third, love for the brethren. Fourth, obedience to God's commands. What's the final one? Number five, a change in your life and desires. A change in your life and desires. Look at 1 John 2. 
Verses 15 to 17, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Verse 3 of chapter 3 says, And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. First John 3 verse 10 says, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil, whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. And you can read through the five chapters of 1 John. You're going to find statement after statement after statement, just like those that I read. In other words, if you're genuinely a born-again child of God, any person in this world has a right to look at you and expect that your life will be different than it was before you trusted Christ. Why? Well, we know the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's the same old critter. Nothing ever changes. Everything remains the same, right? No, it says he is a new creature. Old things have what? Passed away. Behold, how many things? All things. Does that mean our entertainments? Yes. Our music? Yes. Our dress styles? Yes. Our attitudes? Yes. Our speech? Uh-huh. All things are become new. That's what happened to Zucchini, uh, Zacchaeus, that the puppets were talking about this morning, right? And the bean, uh, sycamore tree. Yeah, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus had a change. The moment he had received Christ, he said, you know something? If I've stolen anything from anybody or I've taken something that I shouldn't have, I'm going to give it back and with interest. That was a big difference for somebody who was used to ripping everybody off. And everybody noticed it, I guarantee you. God's word says the same thing about you and me. Any person who dares to name the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible says this. Let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. We have a whole bunch of society today that claims to be born-again Christians who are not running from the wickedness of the world. They're trying to incorporate as much of its music and its language and its dress styles and everything else into the church. When the Bible says in Ephesians 5.11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. 2 Corinthians 6.17 says, Come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I'll receive you. And Romans 12.2 says, Be not conformed, patterned after, pressed into the world's mold. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Again and again and again, God commands in his word that we not pattern ourselves or conform ourselves to the ways of the world around us. We're to be light in the world and salt in the earth, separate from the things of sin. To be a testimony, a light shining in the darkness, not blending in with it. I ask you today, if you claim to be saved, can you look back over your life and see all the things that have changed so far in your life since you trusted Christ? I don't do that anymore. I don't think that anymore. I don't talk like that anymore. I don't go places like that anymore. I don't look at that kind of stuff on the Internet anymore. I don't think the way I used to anymore. You ought to be able to say that because that's the work of Christ in your life. He changes our lives. We're new creatures in him. We'll never be the same again. Five birthmarks of the believer. The Word of God, the indwelling Holy Spirit, a love for the brethren, and obedience to God's commands, a change in your life and desires. Let me close with this. I was preaching a week of vacation Bible school many years ago up in, in Clarksville, uh, Clarkston, Michigan, just north of Detroit. 
And during that week of vacation Bible school, uh, the youth pastor came up, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday, and I said, Brother Webb, we have a youth activity tonight. And he said, by the time, about the time you finish the VBS will be the time we're getting ready to have our snack and our challenge time for the teens. Would you mind coming back and sharing something from God's Word with the teens? I said, sure, I'd be glad to. So I finished the VBS, walked back, shared, shared a message with the teens, went out at the time we were living in a converted bus. Look, if you're a Christian, the only kind of bus you should live in is a converted one. Okay. Anyway, uh, we were living in this bus and, and been out there in the bus maybe 10 minutes when there was a knock on the door and I went and opened the door and here was the youth pastor with one of the uh, the, the teen guys who was a, a son of one of the deacons in the church, big strapping fellow by the name of Tony. The youth, uh, youth pastor said, Brother Webb, this is Tony. Uh, he's one of our deacon's sons. He'd like to talk to you. You can use my office for a few minutes if you'd like for privacy. So I grabbed my Bible, flipped into the youth pastor's office with Tony, sat down and before I said, I said, Tony, before I say anything else about anything else, do you know for sure that you're saved? He said, I'm not sure. I said, Tony, what about these five things? I took him through the same five things I just took you through this morning. What about a change in your life and desires? Nope. Always been doing the same things I've always done before. Obedience to God's commands? Now I'm always doing the opposite of what God says, trying to find out what, how much of the world I can do, how much of this I can do, how much of where I can. What about the uh, love for the brethren? No. I'd rather hang around with a cussing, swearing, rebellious, drinking party crowd. What about the indwelling Holy Spirit? Do you get convicted when you do wrong? No, it didn't bother me a bit to do things that are wrong. Okay, what, Tony, what about the most basic one? Has there ever been a time in your life when you truly repented and turned from your sin, believed on Christ, and received him? He said, look, Brother Webb, years ago when they had vacation Bible school when I was a kid, they gave an invitation, and some of my friends got up and went forward to get saved. He said, I thought I'm a deacon's son. It won't look good if I don't do that too. So he said, I got up and I went forward. Somebody sat me down on a chair. They prayed a prayer for me. They wrote my name on a card, and they said, I got saved. I said, Tony, I'm asking you on the authority of God's word, are you saved? He said, no, I'm not. And he bowed his head. I said, Tony, would you like to do something about that tonight? When he looked up, there were tears streaming down his face. He said, yes, sir. I would. So we bowed in the youth pastor's office as Tony pouring out his heart and tears down his face, called on the Lord Jesus and asked him to come into his life and to save him. Well, there was no NSA, FBI, CIA Christianity for this fellow. He walked straight out of the youth pastor's office, walked right over to the youth pastor and said, look, I want you to know I just got saved. Youth pastor said, Tony, I'm thankful you told me about it, but would you mind telling the rest of the teens we've dismissed in here, but they're still standing out in the parking lot hanging around in the cars. Would you tell them out there? He said, I sure will. So I followed the two of them out there. The youth pastor quieted everybody down and said, hush up, folks. Tony's got something he wants to say to you. And I'll never forget what that young man said. Not under his breath, not mumbling under his, uh, no, he spoke right at me. He said, everybody, I want you to know, I just got saved. He said, I went forward with some of you when we were little kids at Vacation Bible School. And he said, somebody prayed a prayer for me. They wrote my name on a card, but I never asked Jesus to save me. And I, I, I've never had a changed life. My life's been the same wicked life. It's, I've been living a lie and not even a good lie. But he said, tonight I asked Jesus to save me, and I meant business. And he said, I want to ask you to do two things for me, please. He said, number one, I'm going to ask the rest of you that are saved to pray that my life will show now that I belong to him. But he said, secondly, I want to ask some of the rest of you to make the same decision I just made because you aren't any more saved than I was five or ten minutes ago. I know. I see your life every day. Whew. Somebody put it this way. What if Congress voted tomorrow that it is against the law under penalty of death to be an admitted Christian in the United States of America? And someone accused you and you were arrested and tried for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Paul said in Galatians 6, 
From henceforth, verse 17, let no man trouble me. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. I wonder today, can you say, hey, praise God. No doubt in my mind, let no man trouble me. I bear in my body the marks of a believer. I'm a child of the King. If you don't know that for sure, then settle it today before you leave this place. Somebody said, well, preacher, I made a decision, and I thought I really meant business. I'm just not sure. Look, my father put it this way. You may not be able to keep a bird from landing on your head, but you can sure keep him from building a nest in your hair. Okay, What's that mean? You may not be able to keep the devil from putting a doubtful thought in your mind sometime, but you can do something about whether or not you leave it there and fester. You can get rid of it immediately. You can dispatch it with ease with the Word of God and the things that we've talked about this morning either for yourself or for someone else who has that need. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Head is bowed, every eye is closed.